church at Sardis. So Revelation chapter 3, we're going to read just the first six verses this morning. Revelation 3, 1 through 6. If you found that, you can follow along in your Bibles as we read. It says, Unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If, I, if therefore, thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's take a minute and pray, and then we will look at our message this morning. Our Father God, again, as we come before you and we open your word today, we need you to speak to us. Lord, I, you have given us your revelation. You have told us all of the things that we need to know in your word. And as we look at this passage today, Lord, there's lessons for us to learn. I pray that you would now open our minds and help us to receive them, to be open to understanding through the work of your spirit in our life. Lord, there are sins in all of our lives that need to be repented of. And yet, Lord, as you've told us here, there are people who are even dead and don't realize it. But, Lord, just let your spirit do his work in our hearts and convict those people who need to be convicted. All of us are in that category. Help us to repent and to look to you. But, Lord, we want your word to go forth with power today. We want your spirit to do his work. We want your presence to be made known unto us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would guide us as we follow your word, as we listen to the lesson today. Lord, give me strength as I speak of body and of spirit and of mind. I pray that you would just help me to speak the words that you want to be spoken, that your truth may be proclaimed, and we may hear from you. And we'll give you the glory for everything that you're going to do now during this time. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. As I mentioned, we've been going through the letters to the churches in Revelation, and we are at the next church, the fifth church, the church at Sardis. And this is the what's known as the dead church. And, and if you look in verse 1 at the very end, this is Christ talking to the church, and he says, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and are dead. Okay? So... The church here at Sardis um, is, I would say, representative of a lot of what I think churches are today in our, not just in our country, but around the world. Um, people, or, and not just churches, but Christians as well, who look alive, who look like the real thing, but inside there's nothing happening. Now let me give you some background on this city of Sardis because it helps us to understand a little bit about this church in the city of Sardis. This city of Sardis was about 50 miles east of Thyatira. Thyatira was a city that we studied the last time, two weeks ago. Um, They had been basically corrupted by the world and by Satan from within. False teaching had crept in and basically destroyed the church from within. That was Thyatira. This is Sardis, which is just east, 50 miles east of Thyatira. It is the capital city of a province known as Lydia. Um, it was a very beautiful and rich city at one time. In fact, not long after its founding, and we don't know much history about it other than what we've read in history, um, it was a very uh, abundant city in trade. And in fact, there's many gold mines that were around this city, and it, it, it was... Uh, just flowing with riches and with opulence. And the people got so rich and so wealthy and so full of pleasing themselves that they became very lazy and soft. Okay? 
So that's the city. Right through the middle of the city, there was a river that ran through it. And it's said that there was so much gold in the river that flowed out of the mountains that anybody who was worth or who was willing to do a couple days' work could go and gather enough wealth to basically live comfortably the rest of his life. So that's what this city represented. It was wealth. It was uh, easy lifestyle. It was just pleasure. There was a large population of wealthy and powerful Jews here. In fact, this is one of the largest synagogues that was built in the first or second century that they've discovered. Um, it, it, is, it was just a, a very nice city. Just like other cities that we've studied in Turkey or in Asia Minor, as it was called in this day, there were a lot of pagan cults and a lot of pagan worship that happened. Uh, idolatry, emperor worship, that was normal life for the people here. And the city was built on a natural rock outcropping. It was like a natural granite ledge that stuck out from the mountain. The city was built on top of that, about 1,500 feet up in the air. And with the walls that surrounded it, basically, they felt like it was impenetrable. And for the most part, it was. Several armies had tried to conquer it and failed, and so people basically just gave up and let it be for a long time. And yet, twice in its history, it was conquered. First, by the Persians in 549 B.C., and then by the Greeks in 195 B.C. When the Persians came in, we're studying in Daniel in our Bible study about King Cyrus, and King Cyrus was the one who was in charge when Daniel was uh, thrown in the lion's den, but it was that King Cyrus, he was on his uh, campaign to conquer the world, and he came to the city of Sardis, and uh, David Guzik gives us a historical account of the conquering of Sardis, and he says this, King Cyrus found the position of the city ideally suited for defense, so he wanted it. But there was no way that he could scale the steep cliff walls that surrounded the city. So what he did was he offered a very rich reward to any soldier in his army who could figure out how to get into the city and take it over. One soldier sat and studied the problem very carefully for a, a long while. And as he was sitting there, he was watching on the wall. There was a soldier up in the tower of the city of Sardis, and he dropped his helmet off the wall, and it clanged against the wall and then down the rocks to the, mount, to the foot of the mountain below. And so he watched the soldier as he disappeared, and then all of a sudden appeared through a secret, secret entrance and followed this hidden trail down the mountain, retrieved his helmet, and then back up through the same trail, through the same hidden door, and back into the city. The soldier went to Cyrus and said, I know how we can get in. And basically, during that night, the soldiers went up that trail, came in the door, and found no one on the wall because the people of Sardis thought they were so secure that they didn't even bother to guard the wall at night. And so they walked in and took over the city. That was the first time. Almost exactly the same thing happened 200 years later when Antiochus came in with the Greeks and conquered the city again, again, no one was on guard. They came in at night and just kind of overtook the city. So the city was known for its defense, and yet it had very little defense. It was not on guard. They, they thought they were safe, and yet they weren't. And so they were conquered twice. And then in 17 AD, just 75 years before this letter by Christ was written to them, the city was demolished by a massive earthquake that shook the entire city, demolished most of the buildings and most of the wall. And at that point, it was under Roman rule. And so Tiberius came in and rebuilt the city from scratch, paused taxes for five years so the people could recover financially. And in appreciation, basically, the people built a temple to the emperor Tiberius uh, and put up a huge statue in honor of him with this inscription that said, to the founder of the city. All right? Even though the city had existed for hundreds of years before this, they made this statue that gave him the title of founder of the city. And it was in the city of Sardis that there was a lot of emperor worship, just as we've seen in other cities, specifically of Tiberias. So although this city had been kind of the jewel of the Lydian Empire, the capital city, one of the richest and most beautiful cities in the Lydian kingdom, um, it never really re uh, fully recovered its full grandeur or wealth or society even 
once that earthquake hit. And it just kind of went downhill from that point. That was then, in the time of Paul, the time of the Apostle John, now there is no city. You can find a few remains of that city if you go to Turkey, but what's left of it is just kind of a little village called Sart at the foot of the hill. They never rebuilt the city, and it just kind of declined until it went into nothing and died away. That's what happened to the city. And one commentator said the combination of easy money and loose moral environment made the people of Sardis notoriously soft and pleasure-loving, and as such, it was easily overtaken because of its own apathy and lack of discipline. That's the city of Sardis for you. And actually, that's the definition or the description of the church at Sardis. That's the path that it followed, just like the city. The church followed the same path of decline that the city fell into, basically just because of comfort, apathy, complacency. They really didn't care because they thought everything was okay. And so they stopped working at things. And that's where we are in this letter that Christ writes to this church at Sardis in a church that he calls dead in a city that's in the process of dying. Now, what's interesting is it only took about 50 years for this church to get to this point. We don't know exactly when the church of Sardis was founded, but it was probably established by either the Apostle John in his ministry in in East Turkey or in Asia Minor, or by the Apostle Paul when he was in Ephesus for three years. But this, we're talking about 90 to 95 A.D. when this letter was written. It's probably only 45 to 50 years old this church, when they get this letter. And Christ says, you have a name that says you are alive, but you are dead. And that's all it took for this church to die. Now, I want to look at what Christ says about this church because there's a lot of lessons for us in this. First, look at how Christ introduces himself in verse 1. He says, Unto the angel of the church at Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven spirits of God, again, we saw in Revelation chapter 1 as representative of the complete work of the Holy Spirit. The, word, the, the number seven is a representation of completeness or fullness. So when he says the seven spirits of God, this is Christ talking, and he's saying, I have the fullness of the Spirit, the seven spirits or the seven representations of the Spirit, as we saw from Isaiah chapter 11. It talks about the Spirit of God and then six characteristics. He's the Spirit of the Lord, then the Spirit of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of strength, of knowledge, of the fear of the Lord, and the Spirit of worship. So all of those characteristics go together to describe the fullness of the Spirit of God. And that's what Christ is saying. I'm speaking to you with the fullness of the Spirit of God. And we'll see why that's important in just a minute. But then he also says... I have the seven stars in my possession, or hold the seven stars. Remember, these seven stars are the seven angels or the seven messengers of the churches, possibly the pastors or elders from those churches that are going to bring this message back. But they represent God's administrative control within the church. Since Christ has those messengers in his hand, he controls them. And so the message that they bring to the church should be the message of God's spirit. Now, if you put these two things together in Christ's introduction, he has the fullness of the Holy Spirit and all the power that comes with it, and he controls the angels or the messengers of those churches, then the message is this. Only the Holy Spirit of God can adequately control and guide a church. It has to be driven by the Holy Spirit, otherwise the church is doomed. And guess what was lacking in Sardis? The work of the Holy Spirit. And so Christ says, I hold the Spirit, I have the Spirit, I can give it to you, but you don't want it. And so you're dead. So Christ says, I am the one who has the Spirit of God, I am the one who controls the leaders and what happens in the church, and yet basically you've ignored me. You've ignored the power of God, and the Spirit, and the church ends up dead. And he goes on in verse 1 and he says, here's the, the, what the church is. And right away he gives the condemnation. Now usually... Christ says something good about the churches that he describes. 
He says, you've done this, you're faithful in this, or you know, you're doing well, but here's what I have against you. The church at Sardis, he starts right in with the condemnation. And look what he says in the middle of verse 1. I know thy works, thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. He's saying, I know your works. I know the work that you do. And again, this is the same word that's used in the other churches for the labor and the toil that they do in ministry and in presenting God's word to people and in upholding the church and building it up. But he says, I know your works, that you have a reputation for being alive. And yet you're dead. Now, when Christ says, I know your works, it should be a comfort to us if we're truly following him, if we're truly submitting to his authority and wanting to live our lives for the Lord. When he says, I know your works, that should be, okay, Lord, thank you. I know. I'm glad. I'm glad you know me. You know me from the inside out. And yet in this church, when he looks down at the church, he says, you've got a reputation for being an alive church, and yet I know what's going on inside, and you're a dead church. There's nothing happening inside. There's no heart in it. There's no faith in it. There's no substance to it. It's all just activity. They have a reputation for being alive, outwardly active and calling themselves alive, but Christ says they're dead spiritually. They probably were a very alive and spiritual church at the beginning. Most Christians and most, most churches are, it's like, you know, when they get started, it's, oh, I'm so excited for God, I can't wait to tell people about the Lord, I want to spread the word, spread the truth, I want people to hear this. And after a while, that kind of cools off. And eventually you get into this mode of just going through the motions. And you just, okay, well, it's Sunday again, we got to go to church because that's what we do. Yeah, I know I should read my Bible, I know I should pray, okay, I'll give it a couple minutes. And there's no life. And Jesus says that's exactly what this church has become. A lot of activity, a great reputation, but there's no heart left. There's no life in it anymore. But something had changed. There's a progress that we see in these churches. Remember, Ephesus had left its first love. That's what Christ said he had against them. They no longer put God first. They left their first love. The next church at Smyrna actually had no uh, condemnation. They were persecuted, but they stayed faithful. But then we get to Pergamos, and they had compromised outside in the world with the world. We get to Thyatira, and they had compromised and been corrupted inside because of the infiltration of the world into the church. And then we come to this church at Sardis, and it's dead. And there's progress there. And it's probably a system of choices that each of these churches has made, and it represents this, uh, the, the pathway, basically, to becoming a dead church or a dead Christian. You know, Christ says all through Revelation 2 and 3, to those who overcome, I will grant eternal life. To those who overcome, you're the ones who are going to be brought into my kingdom. I'm going to uplift you. I'm going to exalt you. But to those people who just kind of fade away, if there's no life in you, then the life wasn't really there at the beginning. Christ taught this in the parable of the good, I'm sorry, not the good Samaritan, the parable of the uh, sower. In the book of Matthew, it was the very first parable that he taught. And he told the disciples, if you understand this parable, then you'll understand all the other teachings and the substance of what I mean when I talk about the kingdom of God. He said there's four types of soil, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but just to get the substance of it. He says there's the hard ground where the seed, the word of God, is sown, and Satan comes and takes it away. That's people with hard hearts. They get nothing. They have nothing. There's no life, obviously. But then there's two types of soil that look like there's growth. There's the stony ground where the seed sprouts, and it springs up very quickly. And there's life, it looks like. And yet then the sun comes out, the persecution, the pressure from the world, and it fades away and dies. No fruit. And that means no life. And then the third ground is the thorny ground. And the thorny ground is where the seed again springs up, but the thorns and weeds grow up around it and choke it out. And the thorns and weeds represent the cares of the world, the things that tempt us outside in the world that we get so enamored with, that we fall in love with, those things that become idols to us, 
and we start to worship them rather them rather than worshiping God. And those things choke out the life of the plant, and the plant dies, and no fruit. And then there's the good ground, where the seed takes root, and it bears fruit. And the last one is the only one that has true life. And at the end of that parable, Jesus says to the disciples, I want you to pay attention, because these represent the kingdom of God, the people in what we would call the church. There are people who look like they have life. There are churches that look like they have life at the beginning, but they don't last. And therefore, there's really not life in them. And that's what he's saying about this church at Sardis. You seemed like there was something there at the beginning, and yet there's nothing left. You've you've died. And if you've died, that means it wasn't eternal life. It was something else that you were excited about having. Maybe you just wanted the benefits that came with salvation, or you wanted the good things that God could give you if you followed him, but you didn't really want God. See, that's leaving our first love. We want God for God's sake, not God for what he can do for us. And so Christ says they're dead. They had a great reputation outwardly. They were still doing all the activities and outward performance that they were supposed to do. But Christ says there's nothing there. It's just a shell. He said the same thing about the Pharisees. Remember when he he, he, uh, likened them into whitewashed sepulchers, whitewashed tombs. He says, you you know, you're, you're a tomb painted all pretty on the outside, and yet inside there's nothing but dead men's bones. You're dead on the inside. So Christ judges this church, and he judges us not based on our activity or what we perform or or give to other people, not based on our reputation, and it's not based even on what we did in the past. We can't live on a reputation. This church couldn't survive on its reputation. You can't live a Christian life on the accomplishments of your past. One commentator said, sometimes our churches and or Christian lives become shrines to the good old days, to better times, and we're living down memory lane as Christians. Yeah, remember when, remember when, remember when. Oh, I used to be. Let me tell you all the good things that I used to do. Let me tell you all the good things that we used to do as a church. Let me tell you what this used to be. And that doesn't satisfy the demands of today. Christ judges us for what we are now. Not what we did or what we used to be. It's what we are now. And Christ looks at this church in Sardis and he says, you're dead. There's no life in you. John MacArthur, speaking of the church at Sardis, says this. It was a museum in which stuffed animals were exhibited in their natural habitats. Everything appears to be normal, but nothing is alive. It all looks good, but there's no life. And that's what matters. It doesn't matter what it looks like in the outside. What matters is, is there true life inside? Christ goes on, he says, there's a few spiritually alive people later in this, ver- in this uh, section. But he says, there's just a few, even in Sardis. There's just a few. Unfortunately, it was these few who may have contributed to maintaining the good reputation of the church, but the few did not define the church. The few were the exception to the rule. They were strong, this church was strong and large as the visible church, what people could see, but it was very few and weak as the invisible church, the real church. And so Christ calls the church dead. Now, again, this is why Christ introduces himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God, the fullness of the Holy Spirit's work. It is the Holy Spirit who dwells in us that brings us eternal life or seals us into Christ's life. And without the Holy Spirit, there is no life. Imagine if the Holy Spirit decided that he was going to leave at 12 o'clock midnight on Saturday night. 
And Sunday, all the Christians went back to church without the Holy Spirit. I wonder how much of a difference it would make for most churches and most Christians if the Holy Spirit wasn't there. And I'm afraid to say for a lot of people, it probably would be just the same. Because I think there's a lot of Christians, people who call themselves Christians, a lot of churches that are operating without the Holy Spirit in charge, without the whole power of the Holy Spirit actually moving them, doing his work in them. Now, the question we should ask ourselves is this, is the Holy Spirit truly at work in me? And the answer is very easy because you can look at your life. Have I grown? Is there a progress of growth in my life? Are the fruit of the Spirit becoming more apparent? Is my life more defined by love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and patience now as compared to what I used to be? And if there's no change, if we're the same people now, then that's probably a good indication that the Holy Spirit's not there because the Holy Spirit will have an effect in a Christian's life. He has to. The Bible says that if we're in Christ, we are new creatures. Old things are passed away. Remember those things we used to do? That's all gone. We become new creatures. All things are become new. So what made the church dead? Let me give you the biblical definition of what this church or why this church was dead. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, this is Paul talking to the church at Ephesus, and he's telling them, or reminding them, actually, of the renewal, the regeneration that the Holy Spirit has done in their lives through Christ. He says, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. What makes us dead is trespasses and sins. We are dead in sin. That's the plight of every human being. And we have to recognize that. Now, if we never conquer that sin, then we will remain dead. And the bad news is there's nothing we can do to conquer that sin in our lives. We will continue to be dead because we can't make ourselves alive. It has to be the work of the Holy Spirit that regenerates us. The word is quickened in Ephesians chapter 2. It means made alive. You hath he made alive who used to be dead in trespasses and sins. But if you're still dead, guess what that means? Your life is still defined by trespasses and sins. He goes on in verse 2. Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. I live for myself, for Satan. I basically am controlled by Satan. That's what he says. That's what I used to be. And in verse 3, he he describes it more in detail. Among whom also we had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. There's what it means to be dead in trespasses and sins, is when we live for ourselves. That's the philosophy of the world, right? Look out for number one. If I don't do it for myself, no one else is going to do it. If I don't defend myself, no one else is going to do it. If I can't get it for myself, no one else is going to give it to me. That's the definition of the world's philosophy. And that's what Paul says, what we used to be. We used to live for ourselves according to our lusts. According to what he says, um, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of our mind. What I think is the most important thing. My opinion matters more than anything else. Paul said, that's what we used to be when we were dead. But Christ changed all that. We don't live for ourselves anymore. Now we live for Christ. We live to serve others in love. We live according to the truth, not according to what I think. And that's the difference. And if that never changes, then we're still dead. And so dead, as described here, means dead in trespasses and sins. And that's what Christ was saying about this church. This church in Sardis was defined by living by itself and for itself. Their lives and ministry of the church were defined by sin. Now, you wouldn't walk in and go, oh, this place is awful. Because they were doing a lot of good things. But their heart was wrong. There was no spirit. And when I say that, I mean Holy Spirit. 
They were dead. The church may have been operating many ministries that on the face of them look good because they had a reputation for being alive. And I'm afraid there's a lot of churches in our world today that look like on the outside they're alive, they're functioning, they're doing a lot of things, they're, they're having a lot of programs, they're doing all this ministry, and yet Christ would look at them and say, you're dead. There's nothing of substance there. It's all activity. So this church was doing things to benefit themselves, to build a church according to their own wisdom and their own efforts, to establish a name for themselves rather than establishing a name for Christ. Again, John MacArthur says this, what kills a church? Sin kills a church. Error kills the church. Compromise kills the church. And it's sin in its members, sin in its leaders, uh, sins of commission, sins of omission, Little by little, sin kills. It kills the will because it becomes a habit. It kills the feelings because we become hardened. It kills the character because we become warped and twisted. And when the killing power of sin is brought into the church by receiving in unbelievers and by receiving in false Christians and by putting believers in positions of leadership, the church will die. Accepting unbelievers in the church and in positions of leadership grips the church by the neck and kills it. Now, he's not talking about being unwelcome to people who are not saved or visitors in the church. What he's talking about is accepting the philosophy of the world and false teachers who want to come in and bring that philosophy with them. That's what Satan does to infiltrate the church and destroy it. We have to be on guard. Christ's comment in verse 2 defines the spiritually dead state of this church. If you look at verse 2, he says, Be watchful, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. He says, even the things that you have are about ready to die anyway. There's not much left. He says, For I have not found thy works to be perfect before God. Now this phrase, not perfect, means incomplete or unsatisfactory, not acceptable before God. He's saying basically, even though there's work going on, even though you are performing all of these ministries, and remember, he said, I know your work, I see it. It's immature, it's, in, it's unspiritual work. It's for the wrong reason, it's motivated by the wrong thing. Now, remember, God is the one who judges our works, whether they are truly motivated by the right things, and the right things that our motivation should be founded on our love for God, giving Him the glory. Love for others. Remember the first and greatest commandment that Christ said? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy might. And if you do that, then the second is like unto it, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. You know, this little acronym that we see in Christian circles, joy, Jesus, others, you, right? It should be Joe, because you doesn't ever enter into it, okay? It's not Look out for Jesus first, look out for others second, and then look out for myself. There's nothing in the Bible that says look out for yourself. It's Jesus and others. That's the two greatest commandments. And then it says in Paul's epistles over and over and over, mortify yourself. Die to yourself. Forget about yourself. Give yourself to others. Give yourself to God in service. Don't worry about you. God will take care of that. Lots of Christians and churches go through the motions, and they invoke Christianity and God at every turn, but the character of their lives and ministry is more about building up themselves than it is about giving glory to God. That's the problem, and that's where you have the evidence that it possibly is a dead church or a dead Christian. Christian in name only, and that's the title of my message, Alive in Name Only call myself a Christian, but if there's no substance of the Holy Spirit, there's no work of the Holy Spirit, the wrong motivation is there, the wrong philosophy is what drives me, then you start to wonder, is the Holy Spirit really in control? Let me describe a church that's spiritually dead. They may have lots of so-called outreach ministries into the community, but here's the philosophy behind it. They're more concerned with providing physical needs than meeting spiritual needs. They're more concerned with social justice than with God's impending judgment. They're more concerned with racial equality than with submission and serving one another in love. 
They're more concerned with political activism than with holding forth the word of truth. It's not what's politically correct. It's what God says is correct. They're more concerned with the programs and public reputation of the church than with Christ being the center of the church. Now, I've actually had interaction with pastors in some churches. I can't proclaim them dead. But when a pastor makes a blatant statement like, don't tell me what to do in my church, that's a pretty good sign that the Holy Spirit's not in control. There's a lot of churches that are dead. There's a lot of Christians that are dead. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a great Presbyterian minister. He wrote many commentaries on Scripture about 60 or 70 years ago. He had a weekly sermon online that was broadcast on CBS radio. Now you know how long ago that was, okay? Um, But he speculated this, that if Satan took over a city like Philadelphia, for instance, that's where his church was. If Satan took over a city like Philadelphia, this is what it would look like. All the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. The streets would be pristine and clean and tidy. Pedestrians would smile and wave at each other and greet each other anywhere they went. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ was not preached. See, it's not about the morality. It's not about the outward appearance. It's about exalting Christ. And if that's not the end goal and the end substance of both a church and a Christian in their lives, then we missed it. And Christ says, we're dead. As Timothy puts it in 2 Timothy, he says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. You can't fake it. You can't perform your way to heaven. And then Christ gives the warning in verse 3. He says, remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. The warning, remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard. Hold fast and repent. He's saying, remember what you have received and heard. Remember the truth that brought you to God in the first place. Hold on to it and repent. Wake up, he's saying to this church. Wake up and remember what it really is all about to be the church of Christ to be in the body of Christ. Go back to the beginning, to the foundations of what salvation and sanctification and true Christianity are, and hold on to that and repent from everything else. Remember the truth that God first gave you when you came to life and liberty in him. He says, what is the substance of your Christianity? What is the substance of the truth that you live on? Go back to the truth of God's word, what really makes us Christians, and hold on to that. That word hold on or hold fast is a military term, meaning to set a guard, to protect. Remember I told you about the church, or the city of Sardis here, how they had a huge wall but nobody was guarding it. And that's how many Christians and churches have become. Oh, we've got it all figured out. My life is all figured out. My Christian life is fine. I'm just kind of coasting along here. And we don't guard ourselves against false teaching, against infiltration by the world, against the temptation that Satan is going to bring against us every day of our lives. We think we're okay. And Paul told the Corinthians, To him that thinketh he standeth, take heed, Lest you fall. If you think you're okay, if you think you've got it all worked out so that nothing can affect your Christianity and nothing can bring you down, you're about ready to die. That's what Christ says. He says you need to hold fast, to guard against worldliness, to guard the truth of God, to protect that which is truly Christianity and what makes you the church. Now, Christ used the example of the city to make this illustration. Remember, the city had fallen twice 
due to apathy. And it wasn't a great war. It was that the people were just so apathetic and complacent. They didn't bother guarding the walls. And the enemy waltzed right in and took over. And that's exactly what can happen to a church. And it's exactly what can happen to a Christian if we do not guard our lives with diligence. One day we're in church, and then all of a sudden we blink, and ten years later, we're drunk in the street not knowing how we got there. Because we didn't guard the truth. We didn't hold on to it. And he says, this is what you need to do. Go back to the truth. Repent. They needed to return to living by God's word as the absolute authority of both their lives and their worship and turn away from doing things the easy way. And my dad used to tell this to me all the time. It frustrated me to no end. He used to say, you know what? The easy way is not always the right way. Yeah, but, and I'd argue with him. Yeah, but we can get it done so much sooner. Yeah. He'd say, no, the easy way is not the right way. Do it the right way. And that's what Jesus is telling these people. Do it my way, not what you think is the easy way. And he gives this warning at the end of verse 3. He says, if therefore thou shalt not watch, he's saying basically if you're not going to wake up and start paying attention to the problems here and to what I'm trying to tell you, what does he say? I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Now, this reference is not a reference to Christ coming back and taking his church up in the rapture. Okay, whenever you have a reference, or when Christ gives this reference to a thief, it's always in judgment. Look at what he says. He says, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. The word upon there in the Greek is the word against. If he's coming to take his people away in love, and so we can be all happy in in Jesus for the rest of our lives and in eternity, he wouldn't say against. He's saying, I'm going to come against you in judgment. In Matthew chapter 24, we use this as a reference talking about many people talk about the rapture of the church. It talks about the day of Christ, which is kind of all of the events of the end times put together. But the focus to the Jews, and this is where the message is focused, is on judgment, avoiding judgment. And in Matthew 24, verses 37 through 44, Jesus describes the end times. He says, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. When we talk about the flood, he wasn't talking about Noah and how they were took taken up in the ark he's talking about the people of the earth who were eating and drinking and making merry and then the flood came and killed them all that's the judgment and he says in verse 39 he took them all away so shall also the coming of the son of man be and then those verses that many people are familiar with then shall two be in the field and one shall be taken and the other left Two women shall be grinding at the mill. One shall be taken, and the other left. Watch, therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. The word taken there in the original language of the Greek means taken in judgment. He's talking about the judgment of what happens to people who are not watching, who are not following him, who are not alive in the spirit when he sets up his kingdom. He will wipe out all of those who are not with him. In 1 Thessalonians 5, again, talking about the end times, this is Paul writing, verses 1 through 6. He says, But of the times and seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. A lot of times I heard that growing up as, that's the rapture. Okay, that's when Christ comes to take his church. Keep reading. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. That sound like the rapture to you? That's judgment. He says, but ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Same thing, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works thereof shall be burned up. 
When Christ talks about coming as a thief, it's in judgment. And that's what he's saying to this church. I am going to come when you are not expecting it because you're not paying attention. And you will be judged. And there will be no recourse at that point. So Christ is warning them of impending judgment, and it can happen at any time. But look at verse 4. He says, here's the commendation. Not much there, but he says, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. There's a few, he says. And he uses this phrase, even in Sardis. It's almost like people who really knew the church. And he's writing to the church, but he's saying, there's a few of you, even in this unbelievably dead church, there's a few who are still alive. There's a few who are still following me. Remember in Pergamos and Thyatira, there were a few bad, but mostly good. Here he says, no, most of you are bad. There's a few left that are good. There's a few left that are worthy. He says they're worthy because they have not defiled their garments. They have not soiled their lives with a stain of sin. James chapter 1, verse 27 says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. When I first started studying James, I came across that verse. I was like, oh, so, you know, if, you're, if you want to please God, then it, it's okay to just go visit the people, fatherless and the widows, Right? You know, people who have lost their husbands, who have lost their fathers, you go visit them and then God's happy with you. No, the idea behind that phrase is that we live in love to serve those who are otherwise helpless. They can't give us anything back. They can't repay us. That's the point, and that's what true love is all about, helping those people who in no way could ever repay you because that's what the true love of the Spirit is. But he says that's the, the, one of the manifestations of the Spirit or a pure religion. And then he goes on the second part of the verse, and he says, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Not infiltrated by the world, not compromised, not corrupted, as we've seen in all these other churches. And he says there's a few who remain unspotted from the world. There's just a few, not many. There's a few believers among all the unbelievers, there's a few genuine Christians among all the hypocrites. There's a few who are humble among all the proud people. There's a few who are truly spiritual among all these carnal people. There's just a few. I'm going to assume that that means we should finish soon. All right, and he says, and they shall walk with me and write, for they are worthy. These are the few who will walk with Christ, and he calls them worthy. Now, the white garments are significant because they represent purity, but they also represent those garments that those who are the bride of Christ will wear at the marriage supper of the Lamb as we go to be Christ's bride. But it's a few. We call it the remnant. There's just a few. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, Christ is teaching about salvation at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. He says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. The big gate, the broad way, path that everybody's following. The whole world is going that way. Everybody does this. It's okay. And he says, but that's the path that leads to destruction. And then he says, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. If we get to eternity and we could somehow compare the ratio of true believers who are going to enter the kingdom of God with the total population of all of earth's history. Christ says it's going to be just a few. Few there be that find it. And unfortunately, I think that's the definition of most churches. There's a lot of people with a great reputation, but there's only a few who are worthy to walk with Christ because they have not soiled their garments. 
What guarantees our place in heaven is not your church activity or your church attendance. What guarantees your place in heaven is that you have submitted to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have truly believed in him. And if you have believed and you have the Holy Spirit, that will change your life and the way you live and all your philosophy along with it. That's all that matters. Because that's what God sees or what he's looking for when he looks inside of you. And if all your works do not emanate from a heart of love for God, then nothing you do is going to fool Jesus Christ. He knows our works. He gives us the promise in verses 5 and 6 very quickly. He says, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He promises to the overcomers, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. In 1 John chapter 4, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, the Apostle John wrote, the same one who's receiving this message from Christ, For whatever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. We sang this morning, victory in Jesus. That's the only kind of victory there really is. You can't have victory other than in Jesus Christ. Because he's the one who's already won the battle. And he says, if you overcome, if you persevere, if you overcome and continue to be faithful in the midst of a corrupt culture, in the midst of a corrupt society, and even in the midst of a totally corrupt and dead church, those are the ones who are going to walk with him. Those are the ones who are his bride. And he says, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. These people were familiar with the idea of a census. Lots of governments took census so that they could know all the people that were part of their empire, kingdom, and then who were citizens and who were not. And they kept a record in a book of all the citizens. And there were two ways you could actually be raised from that book of being a citizen and having all the rights and privileges of a citizen. Number one, if you died, obviously, your name would be blotted out. Number two, if you committed a crime against the state, they would take away all of your citizenship and your rights, and your name would be erased from that book. And Jesus uses that example to teach us this lesson. Are we truly alive, or have we died, and God is going to blot our name out of the book? Have we lived so as to commit crimes against God that we are unrepentant of? And that is the character of our life then God will blot our name out of that book. The second part of the verse says that uh, he will confess his name, or our name before his father and before his angels. He's just quoting something he already gave when he was on earth here. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, Jesus said, Whosoever shall therefore confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. This is why we baptize believers. It's a public confession before men. This is why we give our testimony, not just in church, but take the gospel to other people because it's a public confession that God is in control of my life before men. That is the characteristic of a true believer. But he says, But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. I wouldn't want to be in that category. In Luke chapter 12, verses 8 and 9, he says this also, I say unto you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. He declares to his angels who his people are. But he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. And in Revelation, he combines those two verses, those two phrases together. He says, it's only the worthy ones, only those who are unspotted, only those who have kept their raiments pure, They're the ones that will walk with me. They're the ones I will confess before my Father and the angels. So the question is, are we dead? Is this church a dead church? Or do we just go through the motions without the power of the Holy Spirit? I don't think so. But that's my opinion. 
The question is, what does God see when he looks down into each one of us? A more personal question is this. What does God see when he looks down into you? It may be active, may be lots of stuff going on, may have a great reputation, but does he find true life there or does he see death? Is the Holy Spirit at work and at home? Is God truly at work accomplishing his purpose in his way? And because the people define the church, then the definition of this church, whether it's dead or alive, will be defined by its people, not just by the pastor. And so we have to ask that question to ourselves. Am I dead spiritually? Have I claimed God just to get all the benefits from it so God will take care of me, so he can give me all the good things, so I can have eternal life? Is that my only motivation? Or have I truly claimed him as Lord Have I submitted myself to his authority to do whatever he wants in my life? That's what true faith is. Are you walking in truth, in communion with God, working, doing his working through the moving of the Holy Spirit in us? Now, I'm not asking, are you perfect? Because none of us is perfect. Okay? God fixes that. God will take care of all of the garbage that's still left in our lives. We can't do anything about it except confess and repent. And that's what Christ calls this church to do. It's the same thing he calls us as people to do. Confess. And even as Christians, we are not perfect. And so confession and repentance is an ongoing thing. Confess that we can't do it ourselves. And then repent of trying to do it ourselves. And he says, remember the truth that brought you to the Lord. Remember the power of God that changed your life in the first place. Wake up and pay attention to the spirit that can change your life and continue to give you life so that you can be alive. And those people who call themselves believers but are spiritually apathetic and complacent might think everything's okay. I believed, I walked an aisle, I said a prayer, I did the thing. I'm good. Got my fire insurance to heaven. I don't have to worry about it. And yet they're the ones that Christ addresses when he says, I will come as a thief in the night and I will catch you up in judgment. You won't be expecting it because you're not watching. You're not paying attention. Be an overcomer. That's his message to us. Be an overcomer. And we can only overcome in the strength of God through the work of his Holy Spirit. We have victory in Jesus Christ, not in ourselves, not in our own efforts. We need to be overcomers in this age and culture of depravity. We need to keep our robes unspotted from the world as you walk faithfully for Christ each day. Don't be guilty of being a dead Christian. And I hope this church never is guilty of being a dead church when Christ looks at us from within. Because he sees it, and he knows. May all of us be found to be alive in him, every single one of us, that's my prayer, so that all of us can be called worthy to walk with our Lord in the white raiment that's promised for us in heaven. And he closes with this verse in verse 6. He that hath an ear, if you're going to listen... If you're going to pay attention, hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Pay attention. Wake up. Confess and repent. Hold on to the Lord with all you've got. Hold on to his truth. Let that become the defining principle of your life. And then you don't need to worry about whether you're alive or dead because that life will automatically be in you through the Spirit that's living in you. Praise God for his goodness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the challenge that it's given us today. Lord, there are many people in churches around, and I don't know the hearts of all that are here. Lord, we know many of them. I hope and pray, and it seems like many of us are saved here, and yet you know the hearts. You know whether somebody is a whitewashed tomb, just performing and doing the activity, 
or whether the Holy Spirit truly resides in them. And so today, I pray now that if there's anybody that doesn't have the Spirit, that doesn't have that life that you promised, that you would just impress upon them the need for them to give up the life that they're trying to live and just give themselves to the Lord, to go back to the truth of God and what you want to do in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would make this church alive because we can't do it ourselves. We need your power. We need your work. We need your direction, your protection. We need you to accomplish your work so that we become what we're supposed to be. Thank you for what you've given us today. Lord, challenge us. Help us to meditate on these principles and just go with us now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.